going to begin by asking you some questions. Why is it when a believer lives a marginal Christian life, one foot in the world and one foot in the faith, why is it we are saddened but not surprised? As if that's normal. And why is it when a believer lives as a fully devoted follower, sold out on fire, passionately committed to the gospel, why is it while we're gladdened, we're also surprised as if that's abnormal? Has this become the new normal, what we expect from Christians? For, for them to live lives uh, largely in complacency, apathy, and even sin, with misplaced priorities, sidetracked by culture, especially ours, with its emphasis on food and drink and money and stuff and entertainment and fun and skin and sex. Why do those things so easily distract us? Well, we hear we're only human. We're just sinners saved by grace. And yet we have this nagging sense that we were meant for more. Things are not as they should be. Is, is this Christian faith, this salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it merely forgiveness of sins and a one-way ticket to heaven. Is that it? And so we live lives of quiet desperation and defeat, longing for the return of Christ when He will make all things right to include in my life. Wow. You don't understand, Scott. We've been saved, but we still live in these fallen sinful bodies. And then we continue to make excuses, dichotomy between flesh and spirit, material and immaterial, secular and sacred, Sunday and the six other days of the week. I'm afraid that we have done a good job in the church telling people how to be saved by grace. We have not done a good job telling them how to live by grace. We read the words of Paul to the Ephesians that we read some, we studied some time ago, and it seems a bit like a pipe dream to us. He, he said, I bow my knees before the Father that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith to, so that you know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. Really? Has that been your experience? Maybe you're a bit like me and, and you'd say there are some times that I like who I am and, and sometimes that I don't. Sometimes that I seem to walk in the Spirit and sometimes that I don't. 
Does the Bible really expect Christians to be different? I mean, really? I mean, to be holy? Or is that just pie in the sky with no connection to reality? We do live in a fallen world. I mean, it's getting darker all the time. Yeah, I've had periods of time in my life when I felt close to God, experienced some spiritual awakening, even lived uh, the fruit of the Spirit for a little while, but, but, but that's not really been my normal life. Why? Does God expect us to even find a spiritual life, f- f- find fulfillment in that life now? Or do we just kind of bear it, waiting for Jesus to come back? Does he really expect us to experience joy in the Christian life? Or is it more like what we see, unhappy Christians? Is is what Peter wrote actually possible? A, A joy inexpressible and full of glory. Or are we assigned lives of defeat and frustration due to continued failure and sin? You know, the normal. I suppose many of you would like to think that that holiness and joy, which, by the way, are not opposites, holiness and joy are possible for the Christian life. You'd like to think that you can experience as a regular way of life a closeness and vitality to God enabled by His Spirit. And I believe that you can. And I'm going to suggest that comes through consistent, and I'm going to use a word that's a cuss word in the, in, in, in the Christian world, it comes through consistent work through what are called the spiritual disciplines. And right away, some of you think, (laughs) wait just a minute. I've I've heard of those ancient oddities practiced by some really weird people. Spiritual disciplines, disciplines, in fact, sounds a bit like an oxymoron to me. If it's spiritual, it can't be disciplined. After all, discipline sounds like something we do. And and what can we possibly do in this sinful flesh? And, And as evangelicals, aren't we committed to God doing it all through the gospel and his spirit? By the way, the answer to that question is yes. Besides, what is this word? Discipline doesn't sound like much fun. In fact, that sounds a lot like how those hermits and those monks used to live. They wanted to live holy lives, and they realized that the only way that they could possibly do that was to live separated lives away from sinful society and the conveniences and trappings of this life. They knew that they had to move away from people. That's our problem. And live in caves and in the desert. Sure, a little bit later, they cloistered in monasteries, but but even there, they kept things in order. They wore rough clothing so they could be irritated all the time, slept on straw beds and little things called cells. They ate vegetables and fish. They prayed for hours. They read the Bible, no TV, and they took vows of poverty, silence, and solitude. Is that what you're talking about? Because you are, if you are, I am not interested. I 
Let me this morning suggest a few thoughts about the, this, idea, this idea of spiritual disciplines. And by the way, you can just sit back and relax. I'm going to do it a little differently. I'm just going to talk. Do you understand that the New Testament is full of exhortations to live a holy life? to live a thankful life, indeed to live a joy-filled life. In short, do you understand that you are exhorted to live a changed life? Christians really are supposed to be different. In, in fact, there is a word uh, in the Greek language that sounds quite similar to our English word morph. We are expected, it's to be normal that we morph or that we change. Let me give you three examples of, of the use of that word. The first is found in Galatians chapter 4 where Paul says, My children with whom I am in labor until Christ is formed, there's the word, until he is formed in you. And you say, yeah, I know, I get that. That's going to happen when Jesus comes back, right? Not exactly. Paul says that he works, Christian cuss word, he labors until Christ is formed formed in you right now, Paul actually had an expectation that his readers look like Jesus. Second, we see a form of this word in Romans chapter 8. For those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he predestined to be conformed, that's the word, to the image of his son. That's an expectation. In fact, you were predestined to be so. From those first, these first two uses, we see this morphing process, the spiritual formation is to the end that we are formed into the image of Christ, that we actually start looking like Jesus. How you doing? Third use is also in Romans, a very familiar verse, chapter 12, and do not be conformed, different word, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, that's our word, by the renewing of your mind. It's a word from which we get our word metamorphosis, be changed, be transformed into something new. Did you know that that's an expectation of you? That you be changed into something new by the renewing of your mind. Paul actually had this expectation that we not look like our culture, that we're different. I didn't say weird, I said different. Again, we see from these verses we're to be formed in the image of Christ. We've been predestined to do so to be conformed and transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, to be sure, that word transform is in the passive. It's something that is done to us, no doubt about that. It's something that is done to us, but it is done by this renewing of our minds. And I want to suggest that that is key to our understanding of spiritual disciplines. Our minds are in need of, remo uh, of renewing. And, that, and it, that takes a constant, lifelong process where I'm suggesting we engage in disciplines that are helpful for the transformation of these hearts and, and these minds. And I'm going to suggest that this happens from the inside out. You see, this is another challenge of the church. We have typically set up all kinds of external boundaries and markers and rules whereby we look like Christians. I didn't say we look like Christ. I said we look like 
Christians, especially our brand of Christians. So we set up these rules. We make these, set up these hoops for you to jump through, these boxes for you to stay in. And then you'll be okay. As one author pointed out, if the pastor finishes his sermon and met people at the back of the sanctuary, greeting them on the way out, smoking a cigarette, he'd be gone by the evening. External marker. He failed that expectation. But if he nurses his pride and jealousy and anger, no problem. He's only human. Really. I am going to suggest that the the goal of this transformation is to become like Jesus from the inside out. It's got to happen in here. And, and, and so, if we are, if the goal is to look like Jesus, that's, what, that, that's, the, that's the goal of this thing called the Christian life, should we not study his life when he took on human flesh and lived on this earth? Yes, I understand. He was tempted in all points as we, in, in, in all points as we are, yet without sin. I understand that he was God in the flesh, but he was in the flesh, And if you examine his life, you will find that he, that is God in the flesh, observed certain spiritual disciplines. You might be excited to know that he didn't practice journaling. At least we had no record of it. I was kind of excited to discover that this week. One of his, uh, in one of his books on the disciplines, and I have several, uh, Dallas Willard wrote, My central claim is that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ. We can do it by practicing the types of activities he engaged in and arranging our whole lives around these activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home and in fellowship with the Father. Jesus practiced disciplines. And we remember that he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To follow him means to do what he did. And Jesus often observed these disciplines when facing particularly challenging circumstances. For for example, let me just give you a few examples. In Matthew chapter 4, right after his baptism, at the end of chapter 3, he's about to enter his public ministry, and we read that he went into the wilderness for 40 days where he, like this, fasted. Jesus, the Son of God, practiced the spiritual discipline of fasting. And by the way, at the end of that fast, the devil came and tempted him, and he met each temptation with quotes from Scripture, it is written, which tells me he practiced the spiritual discipline of Scripture memorization. You say, well, he wrote it. Yeah, but he was in the flesh, and he had to memorize it. Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus heard 
how John the Baptist had been beheaded, he withdrew by himself into a secluded area. Jesus practiced the spiritual disciplines of prayer and solitude, by the way, over and over again. For example, in John chapter 6, crowds came to make him their king by force. He withdrew to be by himself. He breathed through the gospels. You'll find many times that he spent all night in prayer alone, seeking the Father specifically for what lay ahead. Matthew chapter 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he spent three significant times of prayer alone with his father as he faced the events, the horrible events of the crucifixion the next day. Just some examples. But if Jesus exercised spiritual disciplines for what he faced, should not we? Well, unless you have it all together. As we, as we talk about disciplines to, in the weeks to come, if you're taking notes, you need to write this down. There is an incredibly important principle that we must keep in mind, and this is going to guide our understanding of the disciplines. Pastor John Ortberg says it this way. There is an immense amount of difference between training to do something and trying to do something. There is an immense amount of difference between training and trying. Dallas Willard says further, we tend to exaggerate what we can do through trying and we underappreciate what we think we can do or what we can do through training. Everyone makes this point, but, but trying is what we do. That's what we do. We try. And when we try, we fail because we do it without training. We hold on to this crazy idea that we're going to have all that we need at a, at, the moment, at a moment's notice without prior preparation. And so, for example, we hear a message on how loving or patient or kind or humble Jesus was on earth, and we think, I'm going to try that. That sounds good to me. I'm going to try that tomorrow at work. And we fail. No preparation, no training, no uh, we're just trying no spiritual discipline. And you understand, I, I want to just expand on this. We understand the importance of training in almost every area of life expect, except our spiritual lives. Dozens of illustrations. You watch a basketball game. Not the one last night. And you decide that you want to play basketball, you know, like that. And so you buy the really cool clothes with the number 23 on your jersey and the Air Jordans. You buy the expensive leather basketball. You decide to start with a simple dunk, you know, taking off from the free throw line and slamming it down. You think then that you will move on to the more impressive alley-oop. The only problem is you have not picked up a basketball since high school. You are now 5'8", and you weigh 220, and you're white. <laughs> that last one doesn't have anything to do with that. I just thought I'd throw that in. You hear friends at work talking about running a local marathon. You decide you'll join them. Again, you buy the nice clothes, even the cute running shorts, but you never train. Haven't run since college when you vaguely remember running some 5K for a charity. You show up the morning of the marathon, Krispy Kremes in one hand, coffee in the other. How well do you think you will do? Here is the truth. You may want to run the marathon, and you may try really, really, really hard, but you will not win. You probably won't 
finish. And if you want to run well, you know that you have to enter a life of training and discipline so that when the time comes, you run. You watch a piano or a guitar concerto. You remember when your mom tried to get you to practice your skills, but you remember that you'd rather watch the mighty Morphin Power Rangers. You never seem to have time to, to practice, but now you, you've grown up and you have money and connections. And so you rent Carnegie Hall and sent out flyers to promote your concert. People come by the hundreds. You show up in tuxedo, and after introduction, sit down at the piano with a mighty flourish. Do you think you'll be impressive? How many people do you think will stay after chopsticks? It is true whether you want to learn another language or be a doctor or lower your golf handicap. You understand that buying Rosetta Rosetta Stone is worthless for a trip to China if you don't use it. Just buying Mandarin in Rosetta Stone and having it on the shelf is meaningless, much like having your Bible on the shelf is worthless. Deciding you want to help people will not guide your hands as a surgeon. I don't care if you did stay at Holiday Inn Express last night. You see, there is a difference between training and trying. So, again, you can hear a message about being more patient or more loving or more evangelistic, and you suck in some air, you stick out your chest, leave with a commitment to be more patient, loving, to be the most patient, loving evangelist tomorrow at work. The only problem is you have not trained for years, no Bible reading, no time with the Lord, no prayer, no solitude, no meditation. You haven't trained your spiritual life for battle, and you fail again. Is it any wonder? Trying hard to be a good Christian will not produce the results you want. You want proof? Has that worked for you up to this point? Rather, I am suggesting that it takes training, it takes discipline, it takes intentional practice, it takes work. Yes, of course, it takes the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only reason you want to change, to be transformed to who you want to be. But most often, listen to me, it takes the Holy Spirit, but most often the Holy Spirit does not choose to work in a vacuum. Yes, he could snap his fingers, zap you, and you could be instant pressed to change your mature Christian. He doesn't choose to do it that way. In fact, the, the, the definition of sanctification is this. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to make us more joyfully holy. Yeah, I, I wrote that. Joyfully holy, more like Jesus, and it is a work with which we cooperate. In other words, we do our part, we practice, we train, we work. We work out our salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So, I suspect for most of your Christian lives, many of you have heard messages on following Jesus and trying really, 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 really hard to be like him. And after trying really, really hard on Monday, you ended up exhausted and defeated. And I imagine, I just imagine that after a while you gave up. 
And as a result, Christianity, especially in our country, looks weak and anemic because we have lots of professors, but not very many followers. I'm going to submit to you that through this study, the transformation is not a matter of trying harder, but training better. Consider, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul told the church there, everyone who competes in the games, he uses athletic, athletics as an example, I'm in good company. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control or self-discipline in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. Because as one author I read said, the body makes a very terrible master. I discipline this body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I'm not going to take time to exegete that entire passage, but we see woven throughout it, throughout it this idea of discipline, of training, of self-control, because we know that we will receive an imperishable reward. There is something ahead for which we are running. I'm going to come back to that idea. But listen, it takes work. You don't get the idea from reading this passage that Paul is just letting go and letting God, which is, by the way, is not in the Bible. He trained diligently. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, these words, discipline yourself, discipline yourself, Timothy, for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline, that word could be translated exercise, is of only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Since it holds promise, this is amazing, for the present life and also for the life to come. Disciplining myself for godliness holds out hope and promise and impact of a changed life now, not just when Jesus comes back. Paul told Timothy to discipline. The word could be translated, as I said, train or exercise. Train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Please notice, very important. As we go through this, I'm going to remind us of this over and over. Training is not the goal. Training is not the end result. In a moment, I'm going to give a definition of spiritual disciplines, haven't yet, and a list of some, which we will be looking at in the weeks ahead. But very important, spiritual disciplines are not the goal. Godliness, that means being like Jesus, is the goal. These disciplines that we're going to dive into over the next few weeks are a means to an end, I believe an indispensable means to the end of being like Jesus. If he needed it, so did we. So do we. So, for example, when we see Bible reading on the list of spiritual disciplines, we don't read the Bible as an end in itself so that we can check a box. Read Leviticus, check. Good for you. No, rather we read the Bible, God's revelation of himself, so that we can know him, so that we can know his son, and we can be like him. We can perceive uh, what he perceives. 
We can think as he thinks. We can feel as he feels. And therefore, we can do as he does. And none of this will be achieved by wearing a WWJD bracelet as if that is a shortcut to spiritual maturity. Asking ourselves the question, what would Jesus do when suddenly faced with an important situation will not prepare us for the right answer. The right question to ask is what did Jesus do to prepare himself for those situations? Then we will be prepared to live as Jesus lived. If you think you're going to be like Jesus just by asking that little question, you're not. So with all that in mind, what is then the definition of spiritual discipline? In his book, again, Pastor Ortberg, as well as many others, tell us three things that spiritual disciplines are not. It's important that we go through these. Three things that they are not. First, the disciplines are not a barometer of spirituality. Okay? Many people approach these disciplines as a measure of personal spiritual performance and think that God uses the same measure of performance. Read your Bible. Pray a lot. You will get a gold star. You will get a Christian merit badge. You will be really, really spiritual. Not true. Because we have all known people who engage in the disciplines but are some of the most judgmental, irritating, unloving people we know. The measure of spirituality is how much we live like Jesus as a result of coming through the disciplines, how much we live like Jesus, namely loving God and loving others. There's your measure. Second, the disciplines are not necessarily unpleasant. We get this idea that discipline is something we would rather not do, but we have to do, so they must therefore be really, really nasty, not enjoyable. And yet anyone will tell you, as they train for certain activities, like running a marathon, playing a concerto, driving down your golf handicap, while it is work, there is joy in the process. So also, if we are training for life transformation, listen to me, if we are training for life transformation, a life characterized by love, joy, peace, I suspect that those training regimens will indeed bring joy and peace. Even things like fasting, solitude, and silence. And if you don't think they will bring you joy, maybe they will bring joy to those around you. <laughs> we must remember, we get this idea that discipline is drudgery, and we must remember that discipline without direction is drudgery. So for many kids practicing the piano or guitar without a vision of playing in Carnegie Hall or some band or on the worship team will seem like drudgery. There's no direction. Dribbling a basketball without a dream of playing point guard on Pastor Scott's girls basketball team will seem like drudgery. Even running without the goal of maintaining your health and enjoying the exercise will seem like drudgery. So also, the disciplines, you know, like prayer without direction, just simply to check off your little devotional box, will result in wandering minds or guilty naps. Fasting without direction will seem like drudgery. You'll just be hungry. 
Reading without focus will seem just like busy work. We must always remember the goal is to become like Christ and the journey itself can actually bring joy, delight instead of drudgery. Do you believe that? Okay, one does. (laughs) Third, I'm wasting my time. Third, very important, we understand spiritual disciplines are not a way to earn favor with God. (laughs) They are not about trying to be good enough to merit God's favor or attention or forgiveness or love. I said those words intentionally. God's favor or attention or forgiveness or love. We have those already through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The disciplines do not get us extra credit. They are not even ways to demonstrate how committed we are to God. The disciplines are not for him, they're for us. So that we can grow in vitality and relationship with him. Let me be clear. We hear this word discipline. It's, it's, not, it's not this work to curry favor. It, the, the spiritual disciplines don't contradict grace. Sometimes people living, who have lived under the bondage of legalism do this, jump through this hoop to get God to like you, hear spiritual disciplines, and they get concerned. Is this just another way to get God to notice me? Is this just another form of religious oppression? No. Spiritual disciplines are simply a means of appropriating or growing toward the life that God has graciously given you. I want you to be excited about it. Which brings me finally, not I'm out of time, to the definition of spiritual disciplines. And actually, uh, the word discipline may not be the best term since it does conjure up this idea of human effort which produces self-righteousness. I, I hate that. I hate self-righteousness. Understand that. Maybe the word practices would be better, spiritual practices. But since everybody uses the word disciplines, we'll stick with it. But these are practices we observe to make room for God's grace to be more evident in our lives. The whole purpose of the disciplines is to prepare you to do the right thing um, at the right time in the right spirit. In a word, to be like Jesus. Is that what you want? For a definition, John Ortberg, a spiritual discipline is any activity that can help gain power to live life as Jesus taught and modeled it. He did it. These are personal and corporate activities which promote and encourage and empower spiritual growth. And so there is a sense in which disciplines are things that you do But they are things that disrupt the normal patterns of your life, of of thought and and words and actions uh, to give room for God's grace to transform your life, to make room for his thoughts and his life. Remember Ephesians? The fullness of God. This is what Paul prayed for us. Is that even possible? And so with that definition, there can be lots of disciplines. 
Some like to think of them in terms of inward and outward and corporate disciplines. Some, I kind of like this one, think of disciplines of engagement and disciplines of abstinence. Disciplines of engagement are things that you would not normally do, while disciplines of abstinence, of abstinence are not doing things that you would normally do. So let me give you a list with those kind of criteria, although it's certainly not exhaustive. We're not going to go through all of these in the coming weeks. We might go through more. I don't know. Still learning, still reading. All right? Disciplines of abstinence. And we might go for years. Who knows? Uh, number one, disciplines of abstinence. Solitude, silence, fasting. Doesn't it sound like fun? Frugality, simplicity, and sacrifice. Disciplines of engagement, reading, study. I didn't put journaling down. Worship, celebration, service, prayer, meditation, confession, and submission. Again, this is certainly not an exhaustive list. We're likely just going to cover a few of them. And immediately some of you think, as you look at that list, you're kind of scratching your head. You say, well, what about patience? What about humility? What about gentleness? What about self-control? No, 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 no. No, no, no. That's what you go out and try and do without preparation, and you fail. You see, that's where we're headed. These are disciplines to promote those actions and attitudes to be like Jesus. These are activities uh, in which we engage to allow God's grace room in our lives to transform us into the image of his son. Have I said that enough? As we close this morning, I want you to notice that we've entitled this sermon series, The Deep End. Not as if as I've gone off the deep end, but I am inviting you into the deep end. In his classic work on the disciplines, Richard Foster says, superficiality is the curse of our age. Now, I could talk about that. Every soundbite that we want, you know, Twitter, how many, how many, how many characters do you get? Because people won't read more than that. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The desperate need today is not for greater number of intelligent people, think theologians, or gifted people. What we need are deep people. The disciplines of the spiritual life call us to move beyond surface living to the depths. I'm inviting you to plunge in. Some of you have been in the kiddie pool. You've been in the shallow end long enough. It is, it is time to stop expecting mediocrity as if that is normal. Not only in the lives of others, but in your life as well. It is time to plunge into the deep end and to grow in the things of Christ. The Christian gospel insists that transformation is really possible. It is not, however, an overnight fix. It will take work. But it should be normal for followers of Jesus Christ. I have seen it, sometimes even in myself. Jesus' invitation to you this morning is to come, to come to Him, weary, heavy-laden, Broken people, people who were tired of trying. <laughs> and the promise is he will give you rest. His invitation is to take his yoke upon you and to learn from him.
He's gentle. He's humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. We learn from him by doing what he did. And rest. Doesn't that sound good? My goal as we go through these disciplines over the next few weeks is to give you more training tools so that you can go deep into the things of Christ. One author said it this way, godliness is not found on the surface of Christianity. Enough, enough, enough with pop Christianity. It has to be dug from the depths with the tools of the disciplines. You really, listen to me people, you really can become like him. You really can find that inexpressible joy full of glory for which I know your heart yearns. Let's stand for prayer.